Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to be talking about mental toughness. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership globally and co-create a thriving future. With us today is Colonel Deb Lewis. She is going to talk about women and enlightened men and how they face unhealthy stress and anxiety daily. Unfortunately, too few of us have stress tools powerful enough to put the stress that we face to work for us to enjoy the journey. Once you've learned how to be mentally tough, you can use stress to your advantage. It becomes your superpower. Colonel Deb Lewis is a West Point graduate from its first class of women. She's a retired Army colonel and a Harvard MBA. She commanded three U.S. Army Corps of Engineer districts, including a $2.1 billion reconstruction program in combat. She survived the 9-11 Pentagon attack while serving on the Joint Staff of Anti-Terrorism. Deb, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you want to tell us about yourself before we go into the questions? You did a fabulous job, Maureen. I would just say thank you for having me. Thank you for your show. Thank you for Marsha Dasko, who introduced us, because how you're helping leaders handle tough times is definitely needed today more than ever. Thank you. Let's jump into what was your biggest wake-up call that you've had helping people understand the importance of mental toughness? The first time was at West Point when I first got there. But I want to kind of set the stage, if I may. Mental toughness is like healthy eating. It doesn't take long to want those healthy foods as much as you love desserts. Now, I'm a dessert fiend. I will eat dessert first before I eat dinner sometimes because I want to have room for it. But the idea is we can be addicted to the sugar, but healthy foods sustain us. Sugar gives us a high and then we crash. And so mental toughness makes sure we don't crash because you know how you're going to feel afterwards. You're more confident, you feel joy, you're able to focus on what you want. Now, gaining those tools at West Point, I actually did pretty well since it was started in 1802. Bringing women in was a social revolution. And I want your audience to know that gosh, we have too many of those. It's it's like whether it's hate against other groups or it's new women, you know, why are we still doing the firsts of women? But it was a true social revolution that its top leader at that academy had said over his dead body, women were coming. (laughs) It wasn't up to him. Congress voted and they said, do it. And the military saluted smartly and made it happen. But that doesn't mean that the stage had been set there for some real negative kind of actions. But I got through the first day. It was quite, it was professional. It was tough. We had malfunctions, like our uniforms malfunctioned. Our zippers broke for the women, for example, the first day, because they did color-coordinated zippers instead of the strong metal zippers that the men had. So I had to do things that got me in trouble immediately. So I just want your audience to know that. I got in trouble a lot. I had a lot of people yelling at me. And I would say over 10,000 times in my life. But that first day, I got through it, no sleep, but physically I got through it and I thought, great, I'm doing great. And I practiced things, but the second day was a big test. That was when we had to run. Now I know you like riding bikes, but I don't know if you like running. (laughs) I'm not, I'm a sprinter, swimmer. I'd rather, I have a three-wheel tricycle instead of two. I don't even like to put my feet down if I don't have to, but running was not my strength. And so I practiced. And so if you've ever run as fast as you can, as far as you can, and want to throw up afterwards, that's me at a mile and a half. I practiced that. I got to West Point that second day. The cadet in charge said, today the run is two miles. And I went, (laughs) two miles in formation? That's when you've got like, 39 other people with you in a group and you have to run. And so I knew that's like nine football fields more than what I'd practiced. So immediately mental toughness is saying, you know, when you're in trouble, (laughs) I knew when I was in trouble and what do you do next? 
So we started off on our run and there were two other new friends, two women friends that joined me in that run. And one was my roommate. And within the first few steps, guess what? She dropped back. And now I know it's a terrible run. <laughs> now I know that the conditions are horrible and I'm just, my heart is popping out of my chest. I can't breathe. I'm starting to panic. I'm, I'm trying to struggle to, to focus on anything. And then I looked over at the other woman. Let's just call her the gazelle. She was smiling. So here I am panicking. I look over, she's smiling. And I knew right then and there, I had a choice to make. I needed to figure out what to do. And I did certain things that not only allowed me to finish that run, but I made every run that whole first year. That was the big test for women, that women couldn't run and they didn't have any data on us. And so these runs in formation with guys that are like five, you know, easy for them, tough for me. I won't say it was easy, but I exceeded my own physical capability. It wasn't my physicality. It was my mental capacity as I approached it. So mental toughness is about being able to know you're going to feel great afterwards. Maybe I had to recover a little bit, but you have more confidence each time you succeed. And that kept building and building, even though I get knocked down frequently. So that was my big wake up call on the importance of mental toughness. Can you give us then a, how you define mental toughness? It's a beautiful example and story about how you lived it. As you've written in, in your work, how exactly is it defined? There's two ways. I want to start with one. One is that when you're mentally tough, you can be in kind of the worst situations that used to cause you stress, and you're going to have more confidence. You're going to actually feel joy. See, people miss that. Instead of being in survival mode, when you're mentally tough, you feel a lot of joy in your life. And really important, you're able to focus on what you want instead of all the bad things that are happening, like in the run. I wanted to finish that run in formation. But if I had not figured out how to be more mentally tough in that moment, it's a constant improvement that you work on, but you gain greater skills. And I've, over time, after 34 years in the military and then working nonprofits and businesses and other things, I have a lot of tools, but they're simple and you use them in an elegant way. So when you're in a tough situation, it doesn't mean I need this highly sophisticated thing. It's if you've ever seen chainsaw art, have you ever seen chainsaw art? where they take a chainsaw and they carve mm, trees yeah. and beautiful pieces of artwork with the finest of details. So I'm saying you can take a pretty rugged tool that can be used in multiple ways. And then if you can use it elegantly, that's the increased skill of mental toughness. It allows you to take that raw situation and carve it. And what used to be stressful, you're now always seeing opportunities. If it were to say stressful, it's like I get excited about stressful situations. I get excited actually when people are yelling <laughs> because I know that's an opportunity. If you have mental toughness, you know that's a huge opportunity to make a positive impact to everybody who's being subjected to that negativity. Most people run. I will say that most people run, but like the military, fire, police, we love to go to the battle. We, we don't want to die, but we know there's an opportunity to help people. And that's what mental toughness allows you. In your line of work, the innovation, innovation becomes a way of being. It's a way of being because you know you can influence those situations. I'm not saying I control that situation, but mental toughness allows you to work in harmony with others and tap into what's possible. Say more about tapping into what's possible, possible in the collective situation, possible for you, possible for others, because you, you talked about joy and finding joy. And I think many of us, especially in a time of conflict, who don't like conflict, just want to get through to the other side. Survival seems like the best outcome. And you're finding joy in things that many of us choose to duck when we can. What you find out is, first of all, 
is to understand survival mode thinking is what I call an interception strategy. Strategies are designed to get what you want. And if you've ever saw the rules in a football game <laughs> and they're running the other way with the ball and they make the touchdown that wins the game, that is a interception strategy from my book, my playbook. And so being in survival mode thinking is the worst choice. It's as if I, I told you I love desserts. Imagine going into a pie store. I love pie. My favorite, there's a story later about cherry pies at West Point. But the pies, you want to have those beautiful, colorful, mouth-watering pies in front of you, let's say. And when you go to survival mode thinking, those pies are all bland looking. There's three. There's only three. <laughs> and you don't have this wide choice. And they look pretty bland, but they don't look horrible. They look like reasonable choices, but they just, you know, they just, you know, I'm going to eat the dessert just because I have dessert. But when you eat each, any one of them, they all make you sick. Being stressed and in survival mode thinking makes your body sick. It makes your relationship sick. What you want to be able to think about is that what else can I do? And if you want to feel that joy, then you're going to pick a better option. And the better option is such, I'll give you one example. Have you ever had two employees that hate each other? Two employees that just completely disrupt things because you know they despise each other. Well, imagine me coming into a new job and learning that the two administrative assistants slash secretaries sat six feet across from each other, one for my civilian deputy and one for me. And it took me all of one day <laughs> to figure out they hated each other. There was like a force field of toxic energy every time I walked between them or asked one to do something. Now, I know how some of your listeners might say, well, just fire them both. Well, my thing is, well, what would be the impact and message that I send to the rest of the organization? Because I say we want to respect and honor everybody. We want to treat everybody well and, and engage them. So firing them is one of those survival mode options. It's not helpful. It doesn't, it doesn't help them. It doesn't get them through their issues. And so against the odds that everybody would have bet, <laughs> it may have taken me a month, but we address that situation. They had a choice. They could have moved to another office. I wouldn't have demoted them. They would have gotten the same pay. But you have to find what people want more than the bad behavior that they're behaving. So that's a possibility that there had been, I think, five commanders before me, and they brought in mediation people. And one of the recommendations was, okay, this secretary answered this phone. This one answered this phone. You don't cross that. And you come in at this time and you come in at this time and you don't work for the other people. Segregate. Can you imagine a small team segregated tasks and responsibilities? I came in and I said, that doesn't work for me. If I have to make a copy of the paper, which is really the event that kind of triggered all this, I said, I'll do the copying of the paper if everybody else is busy. I don't care about roles and responsibilities other than let's get the job done. And so that's kind of the possibility Nobody would have expected. They hated each other for 12, 14 years and lived across from each other like that in the office. These are some toxic things. And I would say it's always possible. I even had an expert, Doug Krug, who wrote Enlightened Leadership, great person. And he came in and he, and he interviewed each of them. And before we finalized, he came out and he said, well, you know, hmm, something. And then he came out of the second one. He said, you know, sometimes Enlightened Leadership doesn't work. And I told him, you can't tell me that. I believed you. I'm going to, we're going to make this work if we can. And we did. So even the most intractable situation you might view, I'm an engineer. I'm going to either figure out how to, I may not blow it up, but I may figure out how to get the pole in there in the right crack at the right time and hammer that to make a, make a little difference, a little dent, and then keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, keep at it with the belief that it's possible. And most of us have given up hope that it's ever going to change. So you talk about then building skills to handle stress rather than de-stressing. 
and what we hear in the common literature and common conversation is learn how to de-stress. You're taking a different tact. Can you tell us what that looks like and why? Absolutely. I love that question. And here's why. Because if you think about my jobs, I'm an engineer. You're in the middle of a project. Are you going to stop and start doing a painting? Not, nothing against painting, but you're not going to necessarily do that. You're not going to be able to, to say, I'm going to give up my kids <laughs> or I'm, I'm upset with them. So I'm going to give, I'm going to de-stress because the way to de-stress is I'm going to just leave them and walk away. I have a parent who caregiving. Am I going to just say today, I'm just not up to it. I'm going to de-stress. I just believe that most of us who live in the real world really don't have those options, or at least they're not good ones. It's not that de-stressing doesn't have a role. It does, but not at that moment when you're in the middle of the stress. That's why I wrote a course called How to Handle Extreme Stress. What do you need to do with that? The first step is, is something that everyone says, oh, that's natural. And I'd say, not when you're stressed, especially not extreme stress. So it's important to know that as you look at stress and that it's important to be prepared. You talked about it in a couple of your other interviews. I prepare for the worst. I don't look for the worst, but I prepare for the worst so I can enjoy the best. If you kind of crossed your T's, dotted your I's and factored in as many of the risks that you can, then you can sit with your friends and family and enjoy yourself. I do appreciate that because I know there are people who are wired to be positive. My partner's one of them. I grew up with a dad who was in military intelligence who has calculated everything possible. If there's a nuclear weapon explosion, he knows which way the wind will blow. And he positioned his house so that he doesn't have nuclear fallout. So I'm the kid of that. I'm just wired or grew up looking for the risk, not living in paranoia, but attending to what could reasonably go wrong, planning for it, deal with whatever needs to be done. And then to your point, I can relax and have fun because I rarely get caught off guard because of something that could happen. Because you've done the planning. Yeah, what a gift. What a gift is that? Some people are just clueless that bad things happen to people. Well, I've been around anti-terrorism and when the Pentagon got hit by the airplane during 9-11, I mean, people, I studied them. They, they're planning 24-7 to, to harm us. But in spite of that, it's like, is that in my space at this moment? I need to be, have a detector system that's going to know if it's approaching me, kind of like when you're going into the airport. You know, you want to you want the friendly people to, to ride the planes and you want to keep the bad people away and bad things happening. You can't factor in for everything. It's a wonderful gift if you can factor in at least the major things that might happen and then relish the moments, the miracle of life. We get wrapped up in the stresses that we can't enjoy just sitting next to someone who you love and appreciate. Mm -hmm. I could sit with you based on just the little bit that we have gotten to know each other. I could sit with you. We really don't have to talk too much. But then we would get all animated and we'd start, you know, we'd start being joyful mm -hmm. about, wow, did you hear about this? <laughs> did you hear about that? I worked it that way. But it is a skill. Something you said really resonates with me because I think many of us look at our calendar in the morning and as soon as we put our eyes on our phone, until we put that phone down at the end of the day, we are running from meeting to meeting, answering emails, answering texts, responding to external stimulus and have on the, that you showed your helmet, the helmet and shield of, I need to get through the day and handle all these things that come at me that often I feel like I don't have control over. So I start my day prepared for battle with the stuff. And the stuff could be the meetings and the people and the unplanned things. And unfortunately, to your point, many of these things are things I love. They're a phone call with my mother or a phone call with a dear friend. And that's slotted between 65 things I have to get through. And it's easy to flip into survival mode 
and lose connection with the joy that's possible. So can you help me and our listeners understand how to flip that switch so that we move, at least during the times we're supposed to be joyful, can be joyful? My guess is, and my experience recently is, there are a lot more times of joy than stress because some of the things I feel like are just, I have to get through, I can actually love doing. I take on that challenge, Maureen. (laughs) So first you have to understand one piece. It's been recently that I really got this. We are hardwired to see stress as a threat. Okay. Hardwired in our DNA, in our our makeup. And some of that is necessary. You know, if you're going to put your hand on something hot, you need to be have a quick reaction and say, no, don't go do that. But for the overwhelming moments, that hard wiring, I go back to my pie example. If you stay in fight, flight, or shut down, and in business terms, shutting down is a disengaged employee. A fighting person is an actively disengaged employee. <laughs> Okay. And then the engaged employee is none of those, right? The engaged employee is the one that's going to work with you. So one, you have to know that those feelings are normal. Feelings are just like you said, your dad was intelligence. It's an indication of something. It's a skill to say, let's not judge yet. Let's not judge bad or good. It is. It's it's something like that. And then there's a word and you know this word and yet We seem, when we're under stress, we forget about it. Gratitude. Gratitude. I'll tell you an easier one. Smile. How many of you, when your head is getting ready to drop off to sleep, you smile to yourself and have a moment of gratitude of the wonderful things that actually did happen that day. There's probably crap that happened that day, but what was the gratitude? Or that I have my husband. I'm so grateful for my husband. I'm grateful for my daughter. I'm grateful for living in Hawaii. I mean, I try really hard that in those moments before I'm going to sleep is I think about what those blessings are. And the same thing in the morning. You can force yourself for 10 seconds What overcomes that hard wiring? And oh, by the way, we're also softwired to see things as threat. That's the culture piece. So we're hardwired, softwired to act in survival mode. And it takes, I have my helmet here. I have the helmet. I I say, I got it in Greece, the helmet of Athena, who was the goddess of war, but she was also the goddess of wisdom. Protecting our wisdom has to be our highest priority. We choose how we react. We choose how we feel about things after the moment passes where we get struck by the initial one that could be hardwired in us. And then we have the ability to then go, oh, I love it. There's things that I bet you've done it too. You laugh because, oh my gosh, look what just happened, you know, where other people would get stressed out. So how you can do that is even if it's 10 seconds multiple moments of the day. That's one. That's the thinking. And my number one on extreme stress is the breathing. So let me just show you the breathing. The breathing is so powerful. When we were born, we used our our full lungs. Not a problem. You've heard a baby cry. (laughs) But somehow we've convinced ourselves we can get by with 50% of our lung capacity. Now, what does air bring into us? Oxygen. What does oxygen do for our brains? It feeds our brains. And so if we're not breathing properly, we are literally starving our brains. And so breathing fully and completely, just being aware of your breathing is such a gift because you can influence that. You can can use your wisdom to control it. So the technique I call it real quick is the waterfall method. I live in Hilo, Hawaii on the big island. We have waterfalls. I think of it as breathing through my nose. There's multiple ways you can breathe in through your nose, through your mouth, but I breathe in through my nose three seconds and out seven seconds from my mouth. 
And the visual I have is cleansing all that gook that wants to hold on to me and make me feel threatened and active. And so we can do it. Ready to do it? Let's just try just one. Ready? We're going to go in three and out seven. Ready? Three, out seven. Mouth. Okay, stop. What do you feel? More relaxed. And actually, I was doing that during the time you were talking because you cued me before we started. And mm-hmm. in interviews, I never know what people are going to say. So I, I am more attentive than I would be sitting at my desk writing emails. Great. I would be thinking in that moment, this is going to be so great. This is such a great time together. That's what I'm breathing in. And what's going out away is all that garbage, that thinking, oh my gosh, I need to be doing this. I need to be doing that. Because you can think like four times faster than someone can speak. Again, wisdom will allow you to control that so your mind's focused on what you want. And really, I think, Maureen, I think the most important thing above all is how do you want to feel? And if you know how you want to feel, we're smart. We're ingenious. We have innovation. We can figure out in any moment how to get there. And a large piece of it, I'll go back to the smile. They have studies. There's massive studies on this. When you force yourself to smile, even a little bit, doesn't have to be a big toothy one that's threatening Mm -hmm. like a dog. But if you smile even just a little bit and with your eyes, your whole body feels it. So when I'm interviewing, I think about what I want our listeners to think and feel. So I want people to get significant value from the conversation. I want them to feel enriched and cared about. And you know, the other thing I do is we have two dogs, a pit bull and a chihuahua. And the chihuahua sits here on the sofa with me when I'm doing the interviews. Now he's asleep, but there's something about the comfort of this little creature that gives me, oh, I call him our comfort dog. So when I'm doing coaching, he often joins me and sits with the client. If you've ever, whether you're a parent or not, if you've ever held a young sleeping child, if they're not too heavy, (laughs) can't Mm -hmm. be too heavy, but a young sleeping child and that complete surrender and trust, Mm -hmm. that's what we crave in life. We crave trust. We crave deeply connecting with other people. And unfortunately, in the business world and leadership world, we think of what we ought to do or should do or have to do, and we forget about what's most important. And what's most important, people would ask me, say, is the task most important or the people most important? I said, you take care of the people, the task will get done. And the task will probably get done 10 times better than you ever could. And if you can handle that, you're, you're going to love who you work with. I'm still in contact with people in combat that I worked with because they were my dream team. And you would think we did have people die. We did have people harmed. We did have construction blown up, businesses, owners attacked. So those mm-hmm. are things that you can be in the worst chaos. And that's where I learned how my brand of mental toughness, mentally tough women, what I call MTWA, it worked like a charm because I loved the people I was with. We connected quickly. And sometimes I just had a chance to be with them a, at, at a meeting coming in, but I knew that was a key time. Coming in, set the standard. That's the most important time when you first meet somebody. And then you let them, you support them. <laughs> what do you need? How can you do it? If they're not clear on the mission, you clarify. But you don't act like they're stupid. They're smart. You don't act like they're not listening. They are. You treat them with respect and truly honor them because that I can, you can, you've seen those shows where a four-year-old knows more math than people who graduated every level degree. Who is the person? They will not, it's like we judge books by covers all the time, but we don't need to, we don't have to. Just ask. Just the act of engaging 
deep listening, not listening for what I'm going to say next, but deep, caring listening. Absolutely. Great distinction. And human respect. One of the tools I use when I'm meeting someone, especially when I'm anticipating conflict, is trying to remember why they're on the team, what's the value they bring, because most of us don't hire stupid people on our teams, although we occasionally have moments where we get frustrated. Here's a great icebreaker for when you're when you're with people. I was worried about a certain group of people when I was in command, really worried about it. And so I I did kind of questioning like you did. I said, "What is our shared goal? What what mm-hmm. would be the best outcome of this meeting?" And so I wrote something out. And then we came in together, and I appreciated that they wanted to engage and that they've done a lot of work and they're very active. You know, what are the things that I can genuinely compliment them on? What would be the best outcome for our common desire of what we want to do together? And so I said, if you put everything as a draft, that's a big win. (laughs) Because a lot of leaders will draft something and then act like that's the final thing. And nobody wants to say anything against it. Because if you don't get someone, at least one person to change one word, then you are not deeply listening or inviting them to participate. And I'll tell you what I thought was going to take two minutes. We were there like half an hour hashing out what were the words. And when we were done, that set, that relationship, even though they disagreed. One time they they, <laughs> they said something really nasty in a meeting. I, I it was very negative in a very positive tone. <laughs> said something, a big dig. And then I ended up riding in a vehicle with them because I needed a ride from them, right? So you're in in a meeting where they're just, you know, because they were talking about the woman commander and I was the only woman commander they'd ever had in that district. So they were definitely talking about me. (laughs) And so then they said it and and I sat next to someone from the government and I said, look, if you're not going to say something right now, I'm going to. And they did. They ended up saying something to counter it, you know, because they're making a dig at me and I didn't even get a chance to speak. And then I had to ride in a vehicle with them and we were laughing. How many people can do that? You know, when someone says something negative to them. So I think that if you truly love people and honor people, then those magical moments will happen. And if you decide you're like, we have a throwaway society now. Oh, they did something I didn't like. I'm never going to talk to them again. Really? That person could be the answer to your dreams. And because you didn't like one piece of what, like you didn't like your, you didn't like their hair (laughs) and you're going to decide you're never going to talk to them again. Okay. That's your choice. But I would say if you want to open yourself up to the true possibilities of working well under the hardest conditions, honor them, invite them. You know, even when, or, or especially when we get frustrated, to your point, even the people we love that we've chosen to share our lives with, we get angry with. I realize we sometimes divorce them, so I'm not saying we don't throw them away. But if we take the hundreds of thousands of times we have a frustration with our parents or our partners or our spouses or our children or our colleagues, mostly we're able to in our best moments, put it into context and remember that there is more good than bad. That's a great insight. And I would tell you that that's exactly where the magic can happen because incredibly tough times or irritations or things, you know, it's like the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, you, you can take it, take it, take it, take it until you can't. So tough times often push us to implode or explode. We're either going to be down on ourselves or we're going to explode on our family members because that's what stress pushes us. We're hardwired to do those things. But what if you knew there was always something much better to choose from? And sometimes I teach the thing called the pause. (laughs) You know, it used to be, I don't like the way this is framed because it's got negative language. But it, it says, you know, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, is that I would say, wait until you can say something nice until you share that negative, toxic thought. It's just as bad as COVID. If I have toxic in me, some people are, are misunderstanding that they say, I can share it all because they love me. 
I can share it. And I would say, absolutely not. (laughs) You go to your cave, woman and man, or whoever, you go in your cave until you can come out. And sometimes I've, on an email, I may have waited four hours before I could craft something that was productive instead of stating the obvious. Because stating the obvious, you could be factually correct and absolutely wrong for the situation you're in. Can you then connect that to authenticity? Because what you just said, I think, is often used in this idea that it's okay because I'm authentic or it's okay because I'm telling the truth. Thank you for that. Because is it authentic that if I if I showed you if I showed you my helmet and I said, hey, look at look at the front of it, but look underneath or look how it's hinged or look, you know, I want to show you another piece of it. They're all facts. I choose what facts and authentic facts I share. And so, for example, here's a big one. You're going to love this one. What is the word that often starts a war between two people? Yes, but. No. Mm. No. (laughs) It doesn't matter if it's a child you say it to or an adult. No. How many of us, when someone tells us no, we're going to smile as we go off doing it, right? But when you hear the word no, it can trigger all kinds of garbage within us. And unfortunately, I've discovered that about, I would say, 70% of the people, when they're given something new, like you talk about accepting change is hard for people, not necessarily, but there is a group that if they see it as a change or something different, they're going to say no. And my dad does that. My mom will say something to the effect of, well, yesterday we went to the store and we bought And before she can get that out, he goes, no. (laughs) And I'm like, dad. And it sets my mother off. Well, I'm always wrong, aren't I? I'm always wrong. And he'll finish it and he'll say, we didn't do it yesterday. We did it the day before. Okay. He's factually correct. Who cares? (laughs) Was it worth starting the war? I go back to focus on what you want. If you want to focus, you can still be authentic and very carefully be an expert in choosing things that get you more of that. And that's what mental toughness does instead of less. So mental toughness is oftentimes, Marcia talked about courage. It does take courage. It takes discipline. It takes extreme discipline to know that difference and to not react, which Marsha did also talked about reacting instead of responding, which is using our wisdom. When we respond with our wisdom, you'll find that those people you think about the people you love to be around. Are they the ones that are judging everything and harshly? Probably not in my life, not in my life. Right. And yet people who do that all the time wonder why they they always people are nice to them to their face but they don't want to hang out with them i'll tell you why you do have no skill in how to handle stress and you have no skill because you are, have not learned how to be mentally tough mental toughness means that our world is filled with challenges i call it it's really extreme sport would you ever do an extreme sport without having the proper equipment now Riding a bicycle on the side of a road can be an extreme sport, but you have a helmet, you have the bicycle, you have your mirror, you have other things to help you. My bike, I put tinsel all over it. It's a three-wheel trike, so I put tinsel in the basket in the back. I have flashing lights. I have tinsel like a kid coming out of my handlebars so that when I'm going 20 miles an hour, I can do that. My husband doesn't like that, but I do it. They go straight out and people give me wide space. Interesting. So it's designed very specifically for space identification. And it's also parade ready. That's the fun part. It's always parade ready. And it makes people smile. I'm an engineer, so I like people to smile a lot. And I like to have fun. And I can play my music. I have an earpiece. I play my music. And I can be dancing on my bicycle standing or whatever, and I'm in my joy, 
and everybody else's enjoy. They honk at me. Gosh, I just went out and four people were honking and saying, hi, Deb, how you doing? You know, I mean, who does that except you're always giving off positive energy. So authentic to me, and this really boils down to leadership. Authentic best as a leader, what's your role? What's your role? I, it took a long time to learn this, to explain it, but my role is to bring out everyone's best, especially my own first, because I can't mm -hmm. give it to other people unless I'm doing my best. And we're often hardest on ourselves. So that's tough. That's probably my toughest job, <laughs> keeping myself in line. Stop going negative, not, not drawing to the bait, you know, that someone baits me on something or knowing when I'm tired, because when I'm tired or hungry, I can be really grouchy. You know, you're at a low ability to be mentally tough. Interesting points, because you sound incredibly positive. So for people to hear that you work to make that happen, this isn't a genetic predisposition that you're always happy. The happiest people are the ones I have found that have faced the worst in life, and they have chosen life to live with joy. So breathing, making a choice, also heard inspiring yourself and others. So I have to manage myself first, be my own best, and that allows me then to see the best in others rather than, I think many people have a misconception of especially what military leaders do, that as a woman in the army, you had to be tough. And yet I hear you using terms that seem like they would be associated with emotional intelligence. And social intelligence, emotional, social. So yes, my line of leadership rubs certain people wrong. So say more okay. about that. You talked about it, I think, with Jeff DeGraff, talking about innovators are different. Now, they attributed to me being a woman. And then others might say it's because you're an engineer or others might say because you're whatever. <laughs> but I would say as you innovate and do those things, people are not going to give you their best. They're not. And you have to expect that. But that doesn't mean they're bad people. That doesn't mean that I'm going to take it personally. I have had to learn that when you're misunderstood, that's my job to be able to clarify. I work at it every day. We're all misunderstood and we all have incomplete information. It's like the iceberg, you know, what you see is never what you get, especially if it's negative. If it's positive, go with it. But if it's negative, you really need to get the tools out and dig deeper and find out what that is because you will be misunderstood. Just get it and then have joy in it. Say, oh, here's another opportunity to talk about what I'm really about. But if you approach things negatively, I'll just say when you approach things with a negative mindset, a negative perspective, like I said, you could be factually correct but entirely wrong to achieve your goals. Your goals, your plans, and your actions do not match up to how the psychology, neuroscience, like no, when you say no, neuroscience says the mind will not recognize those negative words. Just test it on a child. Don't touch that. No, you can't do that. What do they want to do? They want to do it. <laughs> we are the same way neuroscience is is getting more and more known and being positive focuses on what you want that's the beauty of it and mental toughness as a mentally tough woman it's you lead with grace and you lead with confidence and you lead with kindness and love and so i guess the final piece to wrap that part up leadership to me is I'm bringing out the best in everyone, especially myself. So the second level is I'm going to bring out my best when I'm under stress. And then I'm human. <laughs> I can go negative. I know every negative word in the book. <laughs> I know how to get upset. I know how to yell. I know how to say mean things. Okay. So when my mind and body go to that negative space, 
the third level, the hardest one to really, and in so essential, is I need to go from that negative space that I find myself in my body, and I need to go to a positive place fast. And so again, help us. You've talked about breathing. You've talked about gratitude. If something were to happen in this moment, a truck hit the front of your house, what would you do to move from the cortisol running through your body and the adrenaline and and the things that physiologically happen to return to a place of grace and sense of physical and emotional safety? I'll have to divide two pieces. One is if you're under physical harm, you have to deal with that. You have to do whatever. That's when survival mode's essential. If that truck's coming through here, I need to move. I need to, you know, <laughs> run away is a right. good good thing because I got to get away. Mm-hmm. Okay. But as soon as it's done, like we had a party and someone <laughs> someone put their car on top of our wall. They backed down our thing and they ended up, their car was teeter-tottering on the wall. Or we heard a loud noise and someone landed in the middle of my neighbor's yard. They didn't realize it was a cul-de-sac and they and they spun out. They were going so fast, they spun out and be in the yard. Once that dust settles, you have to react mm-hmm. in that moment for safety-wise. But even in that moment, then you come back and you say, oh. And I'm smiling as I'm looking. I'm saying, I'm feeling sorrow for them because they have to be uncomfortable. But I'm thinking about how can I make them feel better? What's a solution we can come up with? Luckily, we just bought a truck for the car that was teetering on our wall and we were able to pull it off and nobody got hurt. (laughs) So those are the things that it's about focusing on what you want. And I have to say that the, the extreme stress one, there's five steps that I have. It's a free course online. You can go to mentallytoughwomen.com and go to my stress tools. And there's five steps because I found that all f- there is a sequential and hierarchical order. Like you can only last three minutes without air. Okay. That will really put you in survival mode thinking. <laughs> if you're not breathing right, you'll immediately go into survival mode thinking. No, no short, no other way. You're going. The second one is a little bit longer. It's three days, 72 hours, you can go without water. But think about it. Water is that second. That's an example of the second mm-hmm. step. But water, you don't see like the plant where it flops over. You don't see your organs inside doing that. But that's exactly what's happening because parts of our body are 99% water, like our eyes. And so those are things that you want to focus on. But I think if you get back to the definition of leadership, that kind of circulates all of it. Bring out your best and the best Mm -hmm. of everyone. That's my job. Let's shift gears for just a minute. Before we jumped into the call, we were talking about something you are most proud of and most excited about. So tell our listeners what that is. (laughs) This is like the unplanned surprise that popped out suddenly in 2014. And now it's taken me this long to be satisfied and have the format, but it's a new book that came out. Now, when I retired, I wanted to share my lessons with more than a million purpose-driven women because I believe that that was the core. If I have an army of them and they understand some of the things we've shared today, we would get more done. So a book came out that I wrote called Why is Pono Not Pono Today? And that would be like, why is Maureen not Maureen today? We need to notice when people are off. And that in Hawaiian words is pono. You're going to say, if you're pono, you're good. If you're not pono, you're not good. It's like your temperature. And then we know aloha spirit, that's love. And then the third piece is this little girl here in the book is Kuleana. Kuleana is the girl. And so if you're not pono, what Hawaiians will talk about is your kuleana is to fix that to take action. So kuleana is more an action word and pono is assessing ourselves. So this little book has the essence of the teaching of how to handle stress in the most positive ways, because we know people are deeply hurt right now and disturbed and stressed and in a bad way. And that if you do things that are described here in the deeper meanings of each of the images, you will be happier, more joyful, and be able to focus on what you want in life. Deb, this has been brilliant. Let's go back for a minute to 
your website and a little bit more about the, I think you said assessment and tools, where do people go and what can they find? Because this content is, to your point, people are suffering. Men are suffering, women are suffering, children, young people, their suicide rates are through the roof. Through the roof. How do we help women, girls, and also men, because we're all having challenges we had not experienced before and all of us could benefit from an increased ability to deal with stress. Yes, it would be great for people to to go mentallytoughwomen.com. If you go forward slash free gift, you can sign up and I can provide you more, but just go forward slash stress tools. That tab in my website lists a bunch of things that are several free courses out there. I have over 3,000 students from over 110 countries taking. I've done no marketing. Those marketers out there can help, but we need to get this information out. And I think that linking with me on LinkedIn, because maybe you can help and identify who are those groups that could use this information. And how can we package it in a way to reach more people? Because I believe I affected thousands of people positively in the military that I'm still in contact with. How about we affect millions and help them deal with the worst, toughest situations in a way where we love being with each other. And every moment is a gift. And that's what we can provide to each other. It is. And you provided such a gift today, Maureen. This is something that we have other options. If you find yourself fighting, running away, or shutting down, know that that's your signal. You must become mentally tough and learn how to handle stress better. Otherwise, your life will be that way. Beautiful. Thank you, Deb, so much. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more, we'll also have a blog with Deb's content so that you can find the links and some of her tools there as well. Please share this show, share the links, like us, make it available to other people. To Deb's point, we want to reach a million people with this show, with these tools, and with our other shows. Our goal is to help you as leaders become more effective and to help the teams of people you influence. Thank you and be more mentally tough. Aloha.